as we continue our Christmas worship and yet the reading of scriptures, I will be reading from Galatians chapter 4. If you want to follow along in the Bibles at the back, it's on page 974. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guidance and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we are children, are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. But because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God bless his word. Thank you, Z, for that good reading of God's word. Well, Merry Christmas, church and family and friends and those who are gathered here with your family uh, in Owensboro this Christmas, we're glad that you could join us. And for those who are watching um, online, we welcome you as well. So thankful to be able to celebrate Christmas. It's nice to be able to come to church on Christmas Day. Uh, that's kind of the point of Christmas, so it's nice that we can do that and actually worship with God's people. Uh, let me pray and ask for God's help as we preach this morning. Let's pray. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. And we are thankful that we have peace with you this morning, God. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would do your great peace-giving work. Your Christ-exalting, soul-saving, saint-refreshing, mission-mobilizing, justice-advancing, marriage-reconciling, prodigal-redeeming work in our hearts. Show us Jesus and let us worship him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think those are some of the sweetest words in the Bible that Ziombo just read for us. It says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And here's the word, to redeem to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christmas, for all of us, has a, a, a different a feel to it. When we were children, we have memories of what Christmas was like for us. For me, I can remember growing up and, and, and we had the sort of the a disadvantage but an advantage. The disadvantage was my grandparents uh, lived in Tennessee and Michigan. So we didn't get to see them very often, but we did get to see them on Christmas. So they would come in 
And it was like a big deal because if your grandparents are here in the city, you love them, you spend time with them, you enjoy their presence. But when they're gone, one of the advantages to that is that you really, really look forward to when they come home. So they would come home, often my mom's parents, especially, would come home and they would spend time with us. And they were here for at least a month. And we would just every day spend time. My grandparents would play with us. And and uh, and and even if they were tired and didn't feel like it, they were enthusiastic about playing with us. And I can remember distinctly my uh, my grandmother on my mom's side. We called her Mamaw. She was very sweet. Some of you all remember her. And uh, she had this thing that she used to say whenever we would give Christmas gifts to one another. She would often say, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be getting any gifts. And I always thought that was interesting because it was very humble of her. And she would always say it. So no matter, I mean, she would have five, six, seven gifts. And every time you handed her another one, it was, I'm not supposed to be getting any gifts. And you know what? Mamaw was right. Because if you think about it in theological terms, none of us are supposed to be getting any gifts. And yet here we sit on Christmas morning and we are filthy rich, spiritually speaking. We're not supposed to be getting any gifts. And yet here we are with the greatest gift in the entire universe at our disposal, Jesus Christ and our sins forgiven. And it's an amazing, an amazing thing for us to to have this morning. So Mamaw was right. And I want to proclaim and herald to you the gift that you don't deserve this morning and yet that you freely have. So today we finish our Advent series and we've been looking at first Corinthians chapter one, verse 30, which says Christ Jesus became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and today redemption. And today we take a look at that word redemption and I, and I want to start by just defining that word uh, so that we have a sort of a, 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 an understanding of where we're headed this morning. Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, redemption is the act of buying a sinner out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. All right. So the New Testament, when it talks about redemption, uses two words to speak about it. The first word is lutrao, which means to release. Lutrao is the Greek word that means release, to release someone like a prisoner. And then the other word that the New Testament uses is the Greek word agarazo. And agarazo means to buy, to purchase. And those two words are actually used in conjunction with one another so that it works like this. When a lutrao, when a, when a, sorry, when a agarazo, when a ransom is paid, all right, a prisoner is lutraoed, is released. So when there's a payment made, the prisoner is released. And so to be redeemed is to be liberated, it's to be freed, it's to be rescued from slavery. And when the Bible talks about redemption, it's referring to three things. It's referring to the payment of a price. It's referring to release from bondage. And the third thing it's referring to is the idea of us becoming God's own possession. We become his. And so you see those three things. A payment which comes by the blood of Christ. A release which is from our bondage to sin, Satan, and the curse of the law. And our adoption into God's family. And so that's really the essence of what redemption is. And so if you put it all together... 
I took the liberty to take Wayne Grudem's definition and add a couple of elements to it to fill it out then. And so what I would say is that redemption, I would define it this way. Redemption is the act of buying a sinner out of their bondage to sin, Satan, and the curse of the law through the payment of a ransom, which is the blood of Christ, so that we can be adopted into the family of God. That's what redemption is. Now, what I want to do is I want to briefly explain what it means for us to have been redeemed from those three things, from Satan, from our bondage to sin, and from our bondage underneath the curse of the law. So first, we're redeemed from our bondage to Satan. The Bible tells us in 1 John five nineteen that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. We're under his sway. And when Christ came, he died, according to Hebrews 2.15, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, listen to this language, lifelong bondage. That's what he came to do, to deliver us. And then Paul tells us that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So you see this idea of slavery, of bondage to the evil one. In fact, the New Testament anticipates our final deliverance from the kingdom of darkness at the return of Jesus. So there's a part of us, all of us this morning, that's still screaming out, God, deliver me from this cursed world. There's still death. There's still suffering. There's still sorrow. There's still pain. And we're still, we're, some of us are inside are just screaming, God, free me from this place. There's a there's a there's an already not yet aspect of this God releasing us from the bondage of Satan and the dominion of darkness. And and in Paul's theology, this future and this final redemption is the consummation of all of God's past work so that according to Ephesians, believers already have we do right now already have the down payment in advance of this day of redemption So there's going to be a day of redemption. And on that day, we're going to be finally and fully released from all these things. And also the whole world will experience redemption, the cosmos, the earth, and everything will be freed from decay and from ruin. In fact, this same redemption will liberate not only us, it'll liberate the creation. Everything will be made new completely on that day of redemption. And what a day that will be. And what a day we long for that day. So... The point here, though, is that we're redeemed from our bondage to Satan. In fact, as early as Genesis 3.15, we get a glimpse of this liberation and we learn that the seed of the woman, Jesus, is going to come along and he is going to deal a fatal blow to the serpent. And that's interesting because that means that the first gospel promise in the Bible is actually not a promise about the forgiveness of sins at all. The first gospel promise in the Bible is a promise about the destruction of the evil one. And that's why William Tyndale, who gave us the English Bible, also gave us this word, proto-euangelion, which means first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first understanding of the gospel. And when referring to Genesis 3.15, we see, we look at that, we see that that's good news. That's the first good news. And, and that good news that Satan will be crushed is not lost on us throughout redemptive history. It's only added to. So we know that Satan's going to be crushed 
And then we we get added to that picture, the idea that not only is Satan going to be crushed, but sin is going to be crushed and done away with and dealt with through Jesus. And so we just add to it. And that leads us to our second point, is that Jesus came not only to deliver us, redeem us from our bondage to Satan, but he came to redeem us from our bondage to sin. And And how many of you in here is that that's a real feeling? You know what it means to 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 deal with sin in your life. And 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 even though we're Christians, we still struggle with besetting sins. And imagine yourself now before Christ where you can't even fight against that sin with any degree of success because you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. But Jesus came to deliver and to snap that power of sin in your life, to redeem you from that bondage to sin. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's awesome language. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. What great news in Romans 6. And then Titus 2.14 says, he gave himself for us. Hear this word to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Christ doesn't just deliver us from the guilt of sin. What he's doing is he's delivering us from the power of sin. And the idea is that we're being separated from every lawless deed. And and, and my question to us is that what is the characteristic then of those who have been redeemed? And according to Titus 2.14, the characteristic is that they're zealous for good works. He does a work in our heart. He changes us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And that means that our redemption is in his blood. It's the, the, the result of that redemption is the forgiveness of our sins and the source of it is the grace of God. And then 1 Peter 1:18 says, "For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." And so we see that it wasn't the payment of money. So in the case of a buying out a slave, yeah, there was money exchanged to, to, to ransom, to redeem a slave. But in the case of us who were slaves to sin, when Jesus redeems us from that bondage to sin, he doesn't give money. He gives his blood. It was the payment of blood and, and not just any man's blood, but the blood of Christ. And throughout the New Testament, we see this language of blood. It's gruesome. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission for sin. And so Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Just consider how much the New Testament uses the word blood. And of course, in our modern theology, in modern times, people will, people want to refer to this as, recast this as barbaric. But that's exactly what our sin requires. 
the shedding of blood. And so we need to abandon, if any of us still have this idea, this romanticized idea of the cross. The cross was a violent scene. And, and all of the Old Testament sacrifices were a hint of what was to come on the cross. So that hundreds, literally hundreds of animals were slaughtered at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And there was blood everywhere. Imagine that scene. Some of you, some of you all like to hunt. And when you deer hunt and you field dress that deer, you, there's a strong odor. There's the smell of blood. It's a strong smell. But imagine thousands of animals on the day of atonement. Imagine the smell. Imagine the stench. Imagine the scene. And that imagery is supposed to convey something to us. I mean, think about it. What happens when a lamb is slaughtered? Its blood drains out. In other words, Jesus could not have been electrocuted for us if there was such a thing then. Jesus could not have been hung with a noose for us. He had to be crucified because his blood had to come out and had to be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why in Acts 20, Paul speaks about the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So the image of blood then is is there to remind us that forgiveness of sins comes at the expense of a man whose blood was shed for us. And this is why we unashamedly in the church sing songs about blood. Now, I can imagine if you were not a Christian and you came to church for the first time and you were not familiar with Christianity and you saw everybody raising their hands about blood, you might think that's a weird deal. That feels like a cult or something. And I can remember a a guy uh, saying one time that when he was when he was a um, like a teenager, he was invited to church one time and everybody was singing about the blood of the lamb. And he was just complete, kind of freaked out about this whole thing. And, and he said, I, I'm out of here. If, if they start, you know, pulling down like a bloody goat carcass, I'm out of here. And he was nervous because it was weird for him. But as Christians, that's not weird for us because we know that there is no remission for sin without the shedding of blood and therefore we emphatically sing about the blood of Jesus unashamedly so what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus well that leads me then to our third point is that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law Uh, For those who did not keep the law, there was a death sentence. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Cursed. Okay. Then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So here's the thing is that having failed at every single point, all of us in here to keep the law, all of us then are under the curse of the law. And because of that, we are required to pay the penalty. And since no one can keep the law, we are cursed. And that means there is no salvation unless somehow we can be delivered from that curse. Do you see the problem? So Galatians 4, 4 says, and we get this gospel news That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under that law, 
so to redeem those under the law. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking the curse that we deserve on himself and he's enduring the full wrath and weight of God for that curse. That curse Jesus bore and that curse Jesus exhausted on that tree. Verse four, why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the goal. That's the purpose here. Notice the incentive of God here. It's, it's just incredible. When the fullness of time had come. So there's all this momentum. There's all this in the Old Testament. The, the sacrifice of animals and unblemished lambs and all this. And then we get all the way up to this point. And, it, and, the, and, the, and Galatians tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent Fourth, his son in God's perfect predetermined time, he chose to move. And when he moved, he altered the course of human history. These verses are so climactic. God sent his son. God sent his, his, his son. Now, we all know the, the 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 value that different modes of communication have. So I can send you an email or I could write you a personal letter. When you're in a dating relationship, what's more meaningful, a quick text message or a handwritten note that surprises you? What's what what means more? There's a different value of communication. And here God is communicating to the world and his communication is is not of little value. He didn't send an ambassador to talk to us about sin. He didn't send a prophet to talk to us about sin. When God reached forth to adopt you and me, he sent himself. God became man and dwelt among us. God became flesh. He sent his son. He sent his second person of the Trinity. And, and notice this, that the son here is the eternal son of God. Notice that the text does not say God created a son. It doesn't say that. It says that God sent his son when the fullness of time had come. And that means that Jesus was God's son prior to being sent into the world. So it's not like God, it's not like Christ began to be the son of God at Bethlehem. No, he was always the eternal son of God who was in the beginning with the father. But what happened? What happened? What happened is this, is that the word that Jesus, the eternal Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us, as it literally says in Greek. Now, now, what does that mean for God to become flesh? So this would be this would be the the deep end of theology. And Murray Harris says this. I just put it on the screen here. The word does not mean became in the sense of was changed into like a chrysalis is changed into a butterfly and thereby ceases to be a chrysalis. But it means took on or assumed a new Additional form of existence, the Logos, Jesus, became what it was not, Sarks. Without ceasing to be what he was, Theos. And part of the wonder, 
of the incarnation is this new form of existence was not temporary and reversible, but it was permanent and irreversible. Jesus Christ is permanently the God man. And that's why, friends, that right now in heaven, there's a man with real scars on real hands right now. Because it's irreversible. He is forever the God man. And he's a man so that he can relate with you and with me. God sent his own dear son to us. Don't don't miss the radical nature of God sending his only unique son to us. If you think that Jesus is glorious, and you do, imagine what his father thinks of Jesus. And the father sent his precious son to hell-bent, God-hating sinners. Why? To adopt us and to bring us into his family. But there's more. God sent his son born of a woman. Now think about this. Through his conception, though his conception was supernatural, through the Holy Spirit, you know, impregnating the, a, a woman is the, the, the spirit of God uh, causes a woman who is a virgin to become pregnant. That's supernatural. Though the conception was supernatural. His birth was perfectly normal. He, he had to learn his ABCs. He played in the streets in the village with his, uh, with the other kids in the neighborhood. He, he had to learn. He had to grow. He, he had to learn how to use the bathroom. He was a boy just like anybody else. And, and in one sense, we can say he was born actually with no special privileges. In a manger. He was born in a, in a poor to a poor family. And Martin Luther says this, he says, this means that Christianity does not begin at the top as other religions do, but it actually begins at the bottom. God identifies with us by taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. And then notice Galatians. And then it says, God sent his son born of a woman. What's the next phrase? Born under the law. He was born under, under the law. Let me illustrate this. You know, sometimes when you're a kid, you say, you know, uh, somebody says to you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the standard answer that a lot of kids give is, I want to be a fireman. I don't know why that's the one, but it seems like that's the one a lot of times. It'll be a fireman or, you know, I want to be a race car driver. Or, I want to be an astronaut or, you know, it's always some some glorious thing about rescue and some amazing other world thing. And, 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 and you know, sometimes you'll say like kids will say, I, I want to be a cop, you know. And, and we have, even as adults, these ideas in our mind of what would it be like if we were as police officers could just speed whenever we want, you know? I always wonder that sometimes, guys going down the street, lights come on. I mean, you know, they, I mean, theoretically, I guess presumably they could turn those lights on, they could go, and they have some special privileges because they are police officers, right? So if they're trying to chase somebody that's speeding, they can speed. So they're above the law in that sense, They have special privileges. But Jesus Christ, think about this, is the one who gave the law, and yet he comes under the law. He came under the commands he gave. Jesus comes under the full way of the law, the same law that threatens people. And if you don't think it threatens people, read the Ten Commandments. Read Deuteronomy 28, 15 and following. But Jesus didn't say, oh, well, you know, I don't really have to worry about that. 
No, Jesus was tempted at all points. He came under every commandment, even though he wrote it. And he lived perfectly under it every hour, every minute of his entire life. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't do that to show off about how righteous he was, that he could keep all these rules, that he could keep all these commands. Jesus did it for a much more sacred purpose. He did it to redeem you and redeem me. He did it to rescue you. He did it to rescue you from your law breaking. He was a law keeper to rescue you from your law breaking. So Romans 3.19 says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, here's the thing. It's just a sobering moment in this sermon is that some of you never think about the law of God. I mean, you you just rip through whole days, whole weeks, never, ever think about the law of God. And I just want to cause you for a moment to wake up for a second and realize that if you're not a Christian, you are under the law of God. And what the law of God demands is total perfection. And unless you are perfect, you are big time, big time in trouble. Unless there is someone who can stand in your place. And that, and that's where I'm leading because Because some of you never think about the law of God. And you know what? Some of you may never think about the law of God again in this life. But you will someday. You will someday on that last day. You will think about it because you will be held to its standard. You see, you owe God something. I owe God something under the law. You owe God perfection. And the Bible says anyone who breaks the law is under a curse. And Romans 6 says the wages or what you earn for sin is what? Death. That is bad news. The problem is that every time we fail to obey the law of God, we incur a debt to God. It's like racking up more and more and more debt. And guess what? There's no bankruptcy in this deal. You can't file for for spiritual bankruptcy. You can't. And, And you just get more and more debt. And the penalty for all this debt... There's only one penalty and it's hell and it's eternal prison for debtors who have stolen from God by living sinful lives. And so that's a that's a horrible situation to be in. And so what we need is a mediator, someone who can stand between us and God. We need someone to provide a ransom. We need a redeemer who is able to erase our debt before God. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to provide a ransom and the price of the ransom, the price of the ransom was his own blood. D.A. Carson illustrates this by imagining a scene where you have a couple of Jews, right, who are talking and it's before the, the, the day, the day before the first Passover. And, and one Jew says to his friend, he says to him, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm, I'm really, really nervous about what's going to happen tonight. You know, God has said we're supposed to scatter this blood on our doorpost and, and then the angel of death is going to come and, and those who have not done this, the firstborn of that home will, will, will die and, and I'm nervous and, and his friend looks at him and, and his friend says, says to him, um, well, you know, you don't need to be nervous because God told us that if we just slaughter this animal and sprinkle the blood, then that, he will pass over us. And and so we can just trust God's word. And his friend says, 
Oh, I, I know. I know that. I, you know, I know that. And of course, I put the blood on the doorpost. But, you know, it's scary. I mean, I mean, when you think about all that God has done and, and, and the locust and, and, and all these things that have happened here and people dying and the angel of death is passing through tonight. And there's this threat that our firstborn child will die. And I, and I know what God says. And I, and I put the blood there, but it's scary. And his friend responds, says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I, I trust the promises of God. And that night, the angel of death swept through the land. And let me ask you, which one of those men lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Neither. Because... Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the perfection of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. It's not your strength, and it never has been. It's His provision for you. And how many times do we writhe in agony asking if God could love us enough after we've done such foolish and sinful and irresponsible things and we doubt if God will be merciful to us. But friends, listen, we have no other argument. We have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It's enough. His blood is enough. The blood of Jesus is the ground of our assurance before him. His blood is the ground of our faith. And it's perfect. That blood that was spilt is perfect. This is the gospel. Jesus came to redeem those under the law. The word redemption is a fiscal term. It is a financial term. It has to do with buying and selling And as I said, in those days, people would buy a slave into freedom and and, and they would have to pay the full price for that slave. And to be redeemed, Jesus had to pay the full price, which was set down by the law of God. And since the wages of sin is death, Jesus had to die. That was the wage. There's no other way for you to be redeemed. A lawkeeper had to die in the place of a lawbreaker. And so the epistle to Diognetus says... God gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless for the wicked, the righteous for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation. And friends, if you have put your trust in Christ, he has paid the price. The curse is lifted. It's lifted. It's gone. And that's not all. It gets better than that. It does. It gets better than this. Think about it. Because just because a judge declares someone righteous in his courtroom doesn't mean that he wants to eat dinner with him that night at his table. I mean, just because a person buys a slave into freedom doesn't mean that he wants to have him in his home every night. But when God the Father redeemed you and me, he did it so that we could come home. He did it so that we can be with him and that he could be with us. He actually wants to be with us. Do you see that in the text? 
God sent forth Galatians for his son so that, purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the end goal. The end goal is not just the forgiveness of your sins. The end goal is childhood. It's adoption into the family of God. That's the main purpose. The God of the universe is adopting and he's adopting kids that are estranged from him. Kids that are enemies. Kids whose father is the devil. And that means that adoption is an act of God's uncoerced love. You could never do anything to earn that love. Never. But God is, his heart is so full of love. It is so full of love that he adopts. Jim Packer says, says this. He says, God adopted us out of free love, not because our character and record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite, we are not fit for a place in God's family. If you think by nature and birth you are, you will never understand the gospel of grace. Now, listen to me. If you understand what I'm saying here about adoption it will transform your life. It will. This word, ad- adoption, weophasia, in verse 5, is a very, very rich word. The NIV, I think, captures the meaning of this word best when it says, God sent his son so that we might receive full rights as sons. That's what that means. Weophasia means to receive, not not just adoption merely, but to receive full rights as sons. So if you're not a natural born son and you're adopted, do you get full rights? That's the point here. And what he's saying is you do. You don't have to be a natural born son. You don't have to be Jesus to receive full rights. If you're in Jesus, you get full rights as a son. You see, none of us are natural born children of God, but by being adopted, we're treated like a natural born son. We're treated like Jesus. When we put our trust in Christ, we are united to Jesus so that everything that's true about Jesus is true about you. This is just incredible. We're united to Jesus in terms of our relationship with the Father. It's now true of us, what's true of Jesus. When Jesus comes up from the water of baptism, a voice thunders from the sky and, and it's the voice of the Father, and what does it say? You are my beloved Son, in whom, what? I am well pleased. And Jesus, the Father, says the same thing to you this morning in Christ. You are my sons and daughters, in whom, because you're in Christ, I am well pleased. I am well pleased with you this morning. Jesus, the Father is saying that to you. The same affection that God the Father has for his only beloved son, he has for you. He does. That, that, that's, that's too good for a sermon. I can't, I can't adequately preach this. It's impossible. I cannot express the greatness of that thought. That the affection that God the Father has for his son, he has for you. I cannot do that justice. I quit. I can't. I just cannot do that. But there's no greater passion, no greater energy that exists in the Godhead than the energy and the passion that God the Father has for his Son. And yet we're being told that this same love, this same passion, this same energy of love, God has for you. Again, Jim Packer says, God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. 
The idea of his loving and exalting us sinners as he has loved and exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild. And yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. Praise God. There are no distinctions of affections, no differing degrees of love in the divine family. God's children are loved as equally and fully as Jesus is loved by the Father. That is the glorious, glorious reality of God's love for his church. And you know what the crazy thing is? It gets better. It actually gets better than that by a whole person of the Trinity. Because God does not just want to adopt you. Listen, he wants you to feel the effects of that adoption. And so he sends, look at Galatians 4, 4. He sends his spirit so that you can know that you are adopted. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What we have here is all three persons of the Trinity fully invested in your adoption. The father sends his son to buy you out of slavery. The son dies for you to make it possible. And the spirit comes into your heart to persuade you that you are a child of God. And he causes you to cry, Abba, Father. Now think about this. The spirit is God, right? Which means that God sends God into your heart to persuade you that you're God's. You're God's child. In fact, persuasion isn't even strong enough. God sends the Spirit into our hearts crying. And that word kradzo means something loud and something intense. This is not Friends, please don't misunderstand Galatians 4, 6. This is not the still, small voice of God that comes in a whisper. That is not what kradzo means. This word is loud and intense. The image here is not a little child climbing up on daddy's lap and saying, Hi, Papa. That, that's not it. While that is a fitting emotion and while that is fully in line with the character of our adoption and the way God fathers us, it is not what this text says. It's not what this text says. This text says that God sent the spirit into our hearts crying. That is crying out. It's the voice of a slave that has been liberated. It's the voice of a prisoner that knows that the price has been paid. It's the voice of a person who knows that they have been set free. It's a man who is shaken to the core so that the four walls of his heart resonate with a voice of God inside, inside him saying, I have a father and my father loves me passionately. I am free. I am free from myself. I am free from Satan. I'm free from my sin. And I'm free from the curse of the law. I've got a dad and he loves me infinitely so. He loves me like he loves his own son. That's the voice crying, Abba, Father. See, some of you have never had a dad in this life that loved you well. And what I want to tell you this morning is that there is a father in heaven that I'm preaching to you right now who is perfect. And he stands ready to receive you as his child on this Christmas morning. 
there's no greater gift I can give you that we can give you as a church on Christmas. Here's your gift. The Father is there. He's willing and ready to receive you. The only thing you need to do is stop dead in your tracks, repent of your sins, bow your knee to the ground, and say, I accept Jesus' blood and righteousness for me. You do that, and guess what? He will send the Spirit into your hearts, the adoptive spirit into your hearts that causes you on this Christmas morning to say Abba for the first time. And I and I just wouldn't that be great if somebody just gives their life to Jesus this morning. Okay, so some some of you are probably here. You're just man, I'm just ready to get home and get on with my Christmas thing and whatever. This is the point of Christmas, folks. This is it right here. Don't leave here until you get that gift. Just get that gift. Who cares about the toy? Who cares about the thing at home? Get this gift. This is the thing. So others of you may be saying, well, you know, here's my problem. I'm a Christian, but I, I just don't experience that, what you're talking about. Like, so I guess I, I just, I'm just going to have to live my life by faith, right? And, I, and what I want to say to you is that the point of this text is that God does not want you going on forever saying, I can't feel it. The point in sending his spirit to you is so that you'll sense it. That's the point. But in order to sense that and feel that, you're going to have to meditate on these truths if you want to experience his affection in that way. And and what that means is that understanding the adopting love of God for you will have inevitably a transformative effect on your life. And to the degree that you do not understand the adopting love of God, your life will be adversely affected by not accurately apprehending that doctrine. Jim Packer argues that the doctrine of adoption has been unduly neglected by most of us. And I I think he's right. I think he's right. We would do well to spend more time thinking about our relationship as a son to our loving father. So in conclusion, let me ask you uh, these questions. Do the words closeness, affection, and generosity describe your perception of God? Does that change how you relate with him? And if not, I would say that you need to study the doctrine of adoption. Because adopting grace is meant to convince you of God's love for you. Adopting grace is meant to persuade you of his affection for you, his closeness with you, his generosity toward you. Adopting grace is about being wanted. Listen to this. Adopting grace is about being wanted, personally wanted by God. Adoption reveals his affection for you. But friend, if you're a Christian and you are not yet persuaded of God's love for you, I'm telling you, it will affect your life in adverse ways. You will be vulnerable to legalism. Why? Because you're going to try to perform to please him when he's already fully affectionate toward you. You're going to be prone to legalism. You're going to be prone to condemnation. Just, man, I'm just such a bad sinner all the time. Look at me, look at me, look at me, how bad I am in introspection. And that leads to despair. And you, and you will, there'll be a felt absence of joy in your life and you'll be a sullen, depressed, sad Christian. You'll live with a low grade sense of guilt and fear and you will grieve the heart of God. That's the worst thing. 
And that's why John Owen says the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I think Owen's right. I I believe that. So, friends, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, church. God loves you. And what more could we ask for on this Christmas morning? Thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, we we stand in awe, sit in awe, in wonder of what love is this? What love is this that you have shown to us, the Father has shown to us? And and we just dedicate this whole day to you. This day is not about toys and, and all that stuff. That's fun, and we're glad to do that. But what what greater thing than than this that the god of the universe the one who made us has reconciled us to you you've reconciled us to you through the bloodshed of your son and we have the spirit of adoption crying out this morning abba father you are ours we're free and how we run to you we run to your lap this morning and we scream and we hug you around the neck and we say thank you father for being perfect for us and, and we celebrate that. So we dedicate this day. We dedicate this Christmas day. Our families, everything we do to you. You are the guest. You're the one that we're celebrating today. And we honor you. And we're thankful that we got to do that at church this morning. So refresh our hearts. And may we, may we just be in a mode of unceasing worship throughout this day. So we can't make that happen, but you can through your spirit. And I pray that you will. For your glory and for our good. And Lord, may you save somebody today who for the first time comes to this realization that I've never seen God's love like this before. And if that's what the God of the Bible is, then I want him so bad. So bad I want him. And I pray that somebody in this room right now will just say, I I want him. I want him. I want him. And let me just say a word. If, if anybody's here this morning and that's, that's you right now, then I want to invite you to, 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 to just get down on your knees, maybe right there in your seat, or to come up front after the end of the service. And I'll be standing up there and just come up and grab my arm and just say, I want to pray because I want Jesus. I want him. I don't think I have a relationship with God, and I want him. And we'll, I'll be happy to counsel you through that. So, Father, we bless you. We praise you. And we thank you for your sweet son, this indescribable gift. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.